Nothing on the Bonnell Foundation's Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast should be considered medical advice. Medical advice can only come from your CF physician. Cystic fibrosis can be a devastating diagnosis, but living with the disease can bring positivity and a new appreciation for each day. From the Bonnell Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, it's the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast, sponsored by Viatris. Here's your host, Laura Bonnell. So hello, Beth. Good to talk again. We've done podcasts before, and we have actually done podcasts together with Patty Tweed talking about mums to moms. So you're definitely not a stranger to our podcast listeners. And you and so many others have done so much to advocate for people with cystic fibrosis in Canada. And I think it's important for everyone in the United States to hear and know the difference. There are so many differences and your challenges are different than ours. So I thought it was really important during CF Awareness Month, especially to kind of educate people about things that you've dealt with. So did you want to start on a little bit of histories, kind of bring us up to speed? Nice to speak with you again, Laura. You know, I think the challenges with accessing drugs is global, you know, and I think every single country has its own set of challenges. I became aware of some of the challenges when Kaleidico, the first gene modulator, was brought to Canada. Uh, My daughter was 10 at the time with cystic fibrosis and quite sick, needed access desperately. However, the drug had not been negotiated with a PCPA, which is a pan pricing association that prices the drugs on behalf of all the provinces in Canada. And it was just sitting there. So the drug had been approved and had been um, recommended to be funded. However, the pricing negotiations were stalled. And that's where Madison and I came in and we pushed and advocated for that drug to be funded for CF patients that it would benefit. It took two years from that point to get that drug funded for patients. Kaleidico was only beneficial for 3 to 4% of the CF population. So there wasn't a large group of people um, advocating to get this drug through, but we did manage to get it funded. Maddie went on it, and along with 118 other people, I believe, that were qualified for it across Canada, and people have been doing very well with it since that time. The second modulator, or CAMBI, came. It was going to benefit 50% of the CF population. So Orcambi um, didn't have the knock-it-out-of-the-park results that Kaleidico had. So there was a lot of struggles trying to get funding for that drug. And it was recommended with some very strict criteria for funding that was so restrictive that I believe only one or two patients across Canada actually qualified for government funding to have Orcambi. Simdeco, the third drug, came out. Um, Vertex actually chose not to put it through our regulatory CADETH program that does the assessments to decide whether or not they should recommend it for public funding due to the fact that Orcambi had done so poorly and they just didn't think it was worth the money or the time to put it through that process. Some Canadians did get access to Simdeco through their private insurance companies. Um, However, it was never approved through public funding. So this has been a 10-year journey for Maddie and I, um, starting with Kaleidico. So when Trikafta came out, which was, you know, as we all know, it was a game changer for 90% at the time, because we know that there's been a few struggles since then, but Mm -hmm. amazing, amazing drug. Uh, 
In Canada, we watched um, patients in the USA get access to it rather quickly. Well, we had had some regulatory changes um, proposed in Canada around the public um, pricing so that other countries could see what we were paying. And as we know, globally, it's pretty close to the chest what different countries pay because we're all in different circumstances. So a lot of drug manufacturers were very wary about bringing their product to Canada with these uncertain regulations because they hadn't been put into practice. They were proposed. And um, Trikafta was one of those drugs caught in limbo. And Vertex was very hesitant because they didn't want to bring it in and then have these uh, policies put into place that would then cost them a lot of grief due to pricing regulations and restrictions and binds, et cetera, that were created around some of these regulations. So the CF community, along with a lot of the other rare disease communities, started uh, advocating against the PMPRB regulations. They were actually taken to court in Canada and found that many of the policy changes proposed were actually outside the mandate of this quasi-bureaucratic organization that sets these criteria for for drugs coming in pricing in Canada. So it took quite a while. Um, We went to the federal government to push to have the PMPRB changes halted so that this drug could be proposed. Our government had so much pressure from patients, they actually were reaching out to Vertex to say, bring your product to Canada. That's how loud we were being. They knew patients wanted it and needed it. And eventually Vertex felt comforted to bring their product in and that they wouldn't be caught in any of the mess that these new regulations policies had set. So how large is the CF population in Canada? So (laughs) nothing like in the U.S. (laughs) We have about 4,200 patients across Canada. And then, as you know, like 90 percent of those would qualify for Trikafta. And it, it was a big thing because Trikafta was making and has been making amazing changes in people's lives. So, you know, with that knowledge out there, people were just really up in arms about getting this drug into Canada, getting it funded and getting it into patients. That's the whole point of it, right? Even with 4,200, you did get loud for CF as you started this. Um, yeah. With that few of people, I mean... You made a huge difference. People do need to fight and they do need to speak up. And it doesn't matter how many people will be helped by a certain medication. It's still 4,200 people. That's still lives. Those are so many lives and their spouses or their parents and children. I I mean, it's been such a fight. Absolutely. People matter and people needed to realize that they would be heard if they spoke up. You know, the system is very complicated in Canada to get drugs through. There was a lot of educating happening to educate the patients and advocates that were then going to be advocating for this drug. You need to understand the system in order to properly and effectively advocate. Um, I did work with uh, CF Get Loud, which is an amazing organization stood up to be the voice for CF patients alongside the Canadian Treatment Society. You've met Chris McLeod, Mm -hmm. amazing, amazing lawyer, CF patient advocate, and uh, CF Canada, of course. 
So working with CF Get Loud was amazing. We did a letter campaign that had 11,000 letters go to the federal government regarding the PMPRB changes. I have a, a, a thing. I, I don't think it should be this hard. You know, it shouldn't be this hard. You know, and I know, and anybody listening to this that has a parent or a child with CF or any other rare disease, we deal with enough every day without having to go and beg on our government steps to get drugs to save lives. So that being said, I'm kind of working towards a rare disease drug strategy so that we don't have to fight for every drug. So like we've had four drugs we've had to battle for. Mm-hmm. Um, Tricapta, thankfully, after the PMPRB changes, you know, were worked out with Vertax, came in and was fast-tracked. And it was one of the fastest drugs ever to go through the system and get to patients once it was submitted to Canada. You know, and and that was would not have happened without all the voices that rose up. That's another thing to point out, because in COVID, when people were saying it's too fast, it's too fast, they just did not realize all the work that the cystic fibrosis community has done because you want it through fast. As long as all the clinical trials and the research and everything has been done, then yes, you want it through fast. Like, why drag it out? It's all the proper testing has been done all the statistical information and people that it's been tested on. And as long as it's been done diversely through the population, it's so important to move forward. And hopefully everybody gets it now that since the pandemic, hopefully people are understanding that more. And I also think when you talk about this, Americans need to know that the grass isn't always greener in another country. Because I think people in the U.S. do think Canada, everything's just go there and get your drugs, you know, go over the border. Everything's cheaper, but that's definitely not the case. And cheaper isn't always the answer because cheaper and I have so much information now that I've been working a lot with the Canadian Organization for Rare Disease. Cheaper often leads to less, which means we don't have the same amount of drugs approved and available in Canada. A lot of drugs don't come to, I think we have something like perhaps two thirds or less of all the approved drugs for rare disease that the Americans have. So, you know, we might nickel and dime a company down to get one drug in, but that hurts access and availability for all the other drugs that want to come in. And Canada, it's a very small market. Like when you look at, like how many patients does the U.S. have? 70? Thousand? Thirty thousand in the US. Seventy thousand in the world, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So you have thirty thousand. We have forty two hundred. Out of the forty two hundred, only ninety percent of those would benefit from. So I believe we have like two percent of the market for rare diseases in the entire world. It's not like we're the be all end all. So by putting all these restrictions on pricing, etc., and then having such a challenging process to get drugs to patients. It actually discourages a lot of pharma from even coming to Canada. You know, Trikafta was um, approved. And, and if you want to listen to this, it's just mind-blowing. But the recommendation from Cadiz was that only people with a lung function below 90% would gain access. Wow. Yeah. So let's get sicker right. before we're going to let you get better. And cost the community more to get sicker. Yep. To be in hospital, to lose lung function that may never be recovered, right? right. There was children and well, mostly young teens and, and older teens that were saying that they didn't want to do their physio anymore because they wanted to get access to Trikafta. 
and they're saying, if I stay too healthy, I'm not going to gain access to Trikafta and I'm not Trikafta. Like they knew that at this point in time, that's a golden, golden egg. And um, Maddie and I had a meeting with our Minister of Health in Ontario and uh, she truly has been a champion for us. Um, she stuck to her word. She did what she was going to do, like she said she was going to do, which is why I was so fast at once it got into her hands. But I said to her, you know, I told her, I said, kids are stopping their treatments. They, they're fighting with their parents. I said, we spend a lifetime, you know, we're trying to get these kids to do their treatments, to be compliant. Right. You know, and then they're coming back with a good argument saying, well, why should I? Because I'm going to be too healthy. And as you know, CF doesn't just affect the lungs. You've got kids that have had 17 sinus surgeries, but their lungs are at 115% or are less than the 5%, you know, in the 5% weight category because their pancreas and their digestive system. So tying criteria to one specific organ on a disease that affects the entire body was so short-sighted mm -hmm. and really discriminatory to a lot of the patients in the CF population. So Very discriminatory. It's an odd incentive, right? It doesn't make any sense. No. So then where do you go from there? So I had a meeting with Christine, like I said, I explained to her. Now, a lot of politicians, it's so political. Like, it, you know, you and I know, like, people should always come before politics, but sadly, that's not the case. So in our meetings, you know, I realized that the pressure from CADF, which is the organization that does a recommendation. It's the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health, correct? Right. So they were the ones that will recommend for funding. They were the ones that put the restrictive criteria. Now, for a politician to then go against what another body said can be kind of icky, to, you know, just to use a word that just, it's just icky, mm -hmm. right? Nobody wants to be that politician saying thanks, but no thanks. We're going to do it our way. I knew that was going to be the case with our health minister. I wrote to her like a week after the CADA's recommendation saying, well, what if you put a caveat in the approval for Ontario saying that with doctors, you know, recommendation, they could get it. She took that on. So it kind of linked around without slapping Cadeth in the, you know. Mm -hmm. And my understanding from Vertex and from the clinics is that the doctors are writing these letters to the Ontario program and they are getting sidestepped, even if they have 100%. They haven't got that high yet, but some of the kids have been approved that are over 18. Um, some of the other provinces were very brave and did say, we don't care, they're going to get it. You know, if they're 115, we want to keep these kids healthy. So I think it just goes to show that there's still a lot of work to do to get these drugs too. Oh, there's so much work to do. Um, as you know, we're working on the Rare Disease Advisory Council here that would just give a voice to people with rare disease. But not only people with rare disease, it would give a voice to insurance, it would give a voice to the bio industry, it would give a voice to nurses and social workers and health insurance. So we're all on the same page. And so that everybody's working together. It's a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. And yet... It is stuck with lawmakers because one is a Democratic side that is the sponsor and, you know, and the others, the Republican side. And, it, and if it was the Republicans who had sponsored it, it would be the Democrats who were like, wait a minute, I'm challenging this. So 
it's really hard, as you know, because we're just trying to give a voice and get help for people who need it as far as drugs and just educating goes. But you've made a lot of progress in Canada with this. I'm really proud of the entire community for the work and the persistence that they showed throughout this fight. Because um, as you know, when you're dealing with, you know, sickness, chronic illness, you've got a lot on your plate already. So then to take on a challenge like this and, and, you know, be meeting with politicians and pushing and explaining and educating, it's a lot, but we have come a long way. I've started, uh, Maddie and I have both started working a little bit more, and it's very similar to what you're doing with the Canadian Organization for Rare Disease or Rare rare Disorders. Mm -hmm. And we're working on a rare disease drug strategy right now. I do not want to have to work for every single drug that comes out. And that's, you know, if it's going to take two years every time, like one day we're going to have to cure here. There's talks of all kinds of other treatments and therapies just for CF, you know. Right. But I look outside our CF community and see a lot of other horrible diseases struggling, you know, rare disorders. ALS, you know, is having a really hard time and it shouldn't be this hard. We need a system that is designed to keep up with the science and innovation. And we don't have that, you know, and I I think I see the same thing in the U.S. Right. You know, science and innovation has just taken off and our systems are archaic still. They don't recognize the need for speed and getting these drugs and using like real world evidence. You know, why do we have to wait for our own assessment when it's been done in countries all over the world? Like that just seems so ridiculous. We have registries. Like, why can't we invest in making things better for everybody, working more closely with the U.S.? Like we have the same restrictions and requirements pretty much. Like, let's use that information. To have international. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if you look at the CF population, is a, it's a rare disease, but there's a lot rare the diseases that have one patient or two patients. Mm-hmm. Where do they get clinical data to get access to? Like in Canada, they pretty much they don't because there is nothing for them to look at to get these drugs approved. And that shouldn't be the case. Right. There are so many inequities. It's like you said, we're all just chasing our tail here trying to get, you know, something done for this drug or something done. Um, Just an example, when Trikafta came out in October of 2019, not everyone had it on their formularies. So when you would call your insurance company to get the drug, they didn't even know that it was approved. Or for instance, I found out, okay, I was talking to them, I was on them, like, it was approved, you have to, like, call your supervisor, and once they realized, oh, yes, it was approved, here it is, so I did all that work, it was all there, I needed, you know, to get the drug for my daughters, and then I would see on Facebook, somebody put up with the same insurance company that I had just like felt like I broke through and okay, now everybody else that calls, they shouldn't have an issue because they they know it exists. Mm -hmm. Everybody after me, they still couldn't get it. It was like one person maybe (laughs) at the insurance company knew that the drug was on the formulary, but not all of them. It just seemed so discombobulated and (laughs) it should not be that way. Agreed. We had the same situation. And actually, I was on a uh, watched a webinar yesterday 
and gathered a lot of interesting information about the insurance, the private insurance challenges here. Like I've always been focused on the uh, the public system. So I needed to, you know, get a little more up to speed on the private system. And with Trencanto, what was interesting is it's usually not that quick. Like after we got it into Canada and expedited it. So despite it being long because we had the PRB challenges, once we got it in, it was so fast that insurance companies hadn't had the opportunity to do what they needed to do. So in order to get onto the public system, you needed a denial letter from private insurance. Well, private insurance didn't even have it yet. So a lot of them were still saying, well, we can't give you a denial letter because we're still looking at it. So they were holding up people that could have then been on it for the public system. They need to be working together. Right. Then there were a lot of instances where these companies had covered, you know, Kaleidico, they had covered or can be. And Trikasta came and they were like, whoa, because they knew there was a lot more patients. Mm -hmm. They send them, there's other outside agencies they're using now to look at these drugs and like adjudicate. And they're saying, yeah, no, we're not covering that. Go through the public system. And that's not right either. Like people pay a lot of money for these insurance plans. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a get out of jail free card. It's too much money. We're going to like the whole system. Like, and I'm talking government, pharma, patients, and private insurance have to be at the table right? looking at better ways, you know? And instead of having Trikafta come in and put this restrictive criteria around so you're fighting tooth and nail for each patient to get it, how about we look at getting it to everyone that will benefit? And because there's more patients receiving it, having prices come down, you know, to accommodate mm -hmm. that. Okay, the, the pharma company is going to say, okay, well... You know, we could pay here and have a few, or we're going to have all these patients and bring it down. There's a lot of solutions and ways these things can be done. And, you know, we were looking at some slides from um, Europe, and they've got a system there that seems to be working a lot better than what, what we're seeing here in uh, North America. I would agree because, as you know, Molly lives in the UK, and, and their system seems to work better, of course, there's a downside everywhere, mm -hmm. but I think there are a lot of good people that are in the government and on all of these, you know, in healthcare and in pharma and everywhere. It's just, I think we're either not all working together or somebody, decision maker, somebody doesn't understand it. Um, one example here in the U.S. was when Orcambi was approved for private insurance, but Medicaid here, they were deciding in Michigan if they wanted to pay for it or not, because it was expensive. And my argument with that board of decision makers was, that's discrimination. If you're going to say you have to have private insurance and be wealthy enough to get a drug, then it's discrimination. <laughs> you have to give it to people who are on Medicaid. They deserve it just as much as anyone else. And Finally, it did go through and they did pass it, but it was unbelievable that it took so long and you had to fight so hard for something that seemed obvious, like they need medication and the medication's available, they're on Medicaid, and those people should get it as well. No, I agree. And I've used the adage, if you have a, a hiker that goes up on the mountain and 
there's signs posted everywhere. Do not hike, do not, you know, but they go up there, they fall off the cliffs. And I tell you that the dollars are just flowing out there. They've got helicopters, they've got rescuers, Mm -hmm. everything going to save that person's life. There is no budgeting. There is no like, is it worth it? Right. They need to save that life. So why with chronically ill people, does it all of a sudden come down to dollars and cents? That's discrimination. It just drives me crazy. And I think that every person, including the one that goes off the cliff when it shouldn't have been there in the first place, deserves to be. But I think it's a matter of bringing people together with patients in the center. You know, that's pharma. You know, I'm not going to say that the prices charged for these drugs are reasonable. Who am I to say? I don't know. You know, I know there are a lot. I know what's a lot for our systems to handle. I do also know that if politicians and pharma and patients and private insurance companies come together with the focus on the patient, right, to see how everyone can collaborate together so that everybody is happy. You know, the the pharma's still making their money for their shareholders. It has to happen or we're not going to have these drugs, you know, and anybody that thinks right. that they're going to do it for free needs to give their head a shake because right. it's very high risk, right? It's not going to happen. And I think that people, it's easy to point to pharma as the bad guy and they're not. Yeah. They are doing research in a community that only has 30,000 people Agreed. or 4,200 yep. or 70,000 worldwide. So... Here they are trying to save all these people. And yes, of course, they're making money, but they do lose a lot of money, millions sometimes. Yeah. If something that they've tried in clinical trials, which they did with Trikafta, there were, it wasn't just one, we got it, we found it. There were multiple combinations of drugs that they tried, and only one of them made it through. So, once they get paid back, that's the way our system is set up now, then it can go generic. Yeah. But it's either 10 or 13 years, I can't remember offhand, and then a drug can go generic. I know it's different with specialty drugs, but it has to work for everyone and pay off. I agree. Like I'm sick of pharma being called the bad guy as well. I am thankful to pharma because I truly believe that without pharma and Kaleidico, I don't think Maddie would be here. Like, and that's just a true fact. Like, she was very, very sick and struggled for a long time. Mm-hmm. How can you not be grateful to a company, like you said, or companies that are investing right. in people and investing in these rare diseases? They are responsible to uh, shareholders. It's part of business. We all understand business. Right. We have to look at high-risk, high-reward. Very, very risky. Like, pharma in general, and then add a rare disease population, Right. So they have to be able to make money. That's just a given. You know, um, I think that it's on everybody to try and manage that and how they, you know, and to look at the, the benefits of these drugs too. Like, you know, we always see it on the, on the lender side of, you know, this is how much drugs cost. But do we see how much hospitalization is down? Like that's another pocket of money, right? Mm-hmm. We don't see that. That's never taken into consideration. It's just like, whoa, you know, rare disease costing all this money. You know, but those drugs are keeping people and keeping hospital beds open for other people. And and these people are back at work and they're not having disability, you know? Yep. There's a lot of blame to go around. Mm -hmm. It is not just pharma. And it's not health insurance. Right. Everybody has some work to do. Hospitals, you know, have a lot of waste. We're with our kids in the hospital. We can see where 
you know, where hospitals can save money. And we know where an insurance company has messed up or, you know, when you're trying to find out just information about your care and what it will cost. I, I mean, there's so much work to do in every aspect of it. And that's why it's important we all are talking. Absolutely. And and working together and learning from each other. Like if other countries are figuring it out. So Durkin, um, I can't say her, Ranger, I believe is how you say it, is with uh, Cord. And she's in Europe right now, I believe. And she goes and she's learning from all these countries that are getting it done and successfully and looking at investing in your own country. Now, the U.S. has, you know, Boston has a lot of pharmacy and investment in that and it, it helps. Canada doesn't have a lot. And we're so um, behind on that that even when COVID came out with the vaccinations, we were way down on the list because we don't have a lot of investment in pharma and science and innovation. And we had such a adversarial relationship with pharmaceutical companies due to these regulations that were just hammering them all the time mm-hmm. that they didn't look to get us the vaccinations as quick as they did a lot of the other countries that have better relationships. And I think that's needed. That's a must. You need to work together and not you know, nothing will ever be um, solved or improved if you're loggerheads, you know? Absolutely. And because uh, you wrote this down for me, CORD is the Canada's rare disease strategy. Yeah. That's what you were referring to. Yes. Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. And they are an organization that represents all rare diseases in Canada. And they are working on a rare disease drug strategy to revamp this very old, tired, broken system in a way that will help get drugs funded faster to patients faster into the country and approved faster. And look at it globally, you know, and and I think we can work together. I think we can, you know, look at the FDA and then it comes to Canada and we go through it all again. (laughs) Like it just seems like they're the same patient population. It's the same disease. It's the same, you know, Right. Why can't we be sharing information and have registries that handle these things for CF and all the other rare diseases to make things faster, less expensive, right? Right. Because nothing's being changed. Mm-hmm. Trikafta did not change its drug makeup. No. Or Vertex didn't change the drug makeup of Trikafta. Oh, we're giving it to Canada. We need a different, you know, yeah. combination of drugs there. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. So there needs to be an international group that approves it for the entire world. Yeah. So everyone can have access to it. And I think that skeptics would think, oh, we're just moms. It's got to be more complicated because everyone has different governments. But I think that is so small minded to think that. And it also, a good example is COVID for everyone who thought, no one can work at home. Telehealth isn't possible. All of those things that when COVID hit, you know, yes, we can do telehealth. Yes, you can work from home. It is possible and people have to think outside the box. I think internationally, having a regulatory system that approves it so worldwide, 
the US, Canada, the UK, Egypt, the Middle East, everybody gets approved at the same time yeah. and then goes through their system. It's the only way to make it fair for the world. It makes perfect sense to have uh, because all of these countries have the same um, expectations and safety requirements. You know, if you have to tweak here and there, you have everybody with one person at the table sitting Mm -hmm. and let's get this set up, right? Like it's got to be more efficient than what's happening right now. You know what I mean? With every country doing it on their own. Like I can't see how they could say, you know, initially there's always an investment in getting something like this set up. But rather than have every country doing every drug as they all come out, it seems like it would make a whole lot more sense to have one system that could do something like that, right? And because mentally, people were so desperate to get it because it changes the underlying condition of cystic fibrosis. It is not a cure, but it is life or death for some people, you know, that are in between needing a transplant even. There are people that got off the transplant list when they went on Trikafta and things like that. I, I just think it's cruel and mean and wrong to just have to go through unnecessary waiting. You know, you know the drug is safe and it should just move along faster. We lost a number of young CF patients while this drug was going through the process. That's heart-wrenching to think that had they been on, you know, the other side of the border, Mm -hmm. they'd be with us, you know, because of policies. Right. You know, to think those parents that I know are hurting so bad still, as you can imagine, to see other kids getting it and other patients getting it now, it was coming. It was coming, like, you know, and... right. Patients lost their life because of a process and a flawed process at that. And I think we need to do better for patients, right? And I think we need to have that. That's why I think it patient-focused with, we need everybody at the table to think that could be their kid, right? Yes, and even with the COVID vaccine, let's say half of the United States had access to the vaccine and the other half was dying. Who would think that's a great idea? Yeah. There would be riots in the street if only half of the U.S. could get the vaccine because the rest of you, we're going to have to, we're going to wait. We have a different formula for giving you the vaccine. In the meantime, this half is going to get the vaccine. The rest of you, good luck. I mean, I know that's a very simplistic example, but it is the same thing. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's why, like, Talks like ours today and just bringing more awareness to the disparities in access to drugs. And, you know, so often if it doesn't affect you, it doesn't affect you. You don't know, right? Mm -hmm. But anybody could be attacked by a rare disease at any time. And, And even us, we have it in our family. We could, another one could come and, you know, we have to have a system set up to work for that. And Letting everybody know whether you have that in your family or not and wanting better for your own country and for your own people so that when you're hit, you go, wow, thank goodness I was part of a solution. You know, I worked to be part of a solution and didn't close, put my blinders on and say, well, that's them. You know, that's big to me. I want, you know, I would love to see more of our CF patients in Canada working towards a rare disease drug strategy. 
our advocates were outstanding, you know, and I understand and you will understand too, they've fought, they're now feeling great and ready to just live their lives. Like, you know, enough already. Like, I don't want to, you know, and I understand that. But what if two years from now we have the cure? Right. And we got to start over again. Or what if you're on it for a while and have to come off because that happens, right? Like, Mm-hmm. let's not be short-sighted. Let's look for a better way. Exactly. And I have a really sad story. We won't end on this, but I've been talking to CF families in Egypt where they don't even, they're on the verge of recognizing cystic fibrosis as a disease. But as you know, and I did four podcasts about it, um, Dr. Nasser, who is Egyptian, she had been trying to get doctors there to say, yes, there is CF. Well, they started letting her test. I think she's um, diagnosed a thousand people with cystic fibrosis. Their life expectancy is eight years old. Here in the United States, it's 50. And I'm sure Canada is the same yeah. as 50. Yeah. But the discrepancy between eight and 50 years old for life expectancy should not be. And this father who has two boys that are five and he thinks they'll be dead before they're eight. He, you know, wants me to get him a job here in the U.S., like, which is impossible at this point. There's just, you know, and he's trying to get out of Egypt because right now he has to buy enzymes from Saudi Arabia and only can give them to his twins every other day because he doesn't want to run out of them. Just basic care is not accessible. It's not right. So yeah, I think um, Canada's lucky to have you you. fighting for this. It's, there's so much work to still be done, but it's going to make it better for everyone, for people with every disease, I believe. And, then, and that's with you doing the work for the Rare um, Consortium. What is the Rare Disease Advisory Council? Is that what you mean? Working on that? Yes. Like you're making differences there too. And it's only by standing up and being a voice that change is going to happen. And like I said, the, the CF community here was extremely loud. I was really happy. I on the call that I did the other day to see a number of advocates that were really good, strong advocates on the call for the rare disease drug strategy. And I'm like, yes, like that's what we need. We need people. We need to be heard because if you're quiet about it, they don't need to work. It truly is a squeaky wheel that gets the oil. It is absolutely. And moms just, um, we're done being polite. I don't think there's room for it. Right. We only have so much time on this earth and and then we're going to leave our kids behind. Yeah. So we need to get this fixed uh, for them. Absolutely. And the time is now. Like, I'm tired of chasing my tail. You know, the drug comes and we fight. The drug comes and we fight. The drug, you know, I want to be set up and ready. So when that drug comes, I know the people that need it are going to be getting that. And there's a process in place to put that through and get to people. And it's been designed by people that understand the necessities and how to make something work that, you know, I don't want to bankrupt the country or or the private insurance companies or the pharma companies. I think there's a way that they can collaborate and make this and get it done so that everybody wins, right? With patients being the most important. Mm -hmm. Like that person that gets, you know, off the cliff and has everything thrown at it without being thought about we need to see all patients like that. They struggle every day. And to 
nickel and dime them. And I remember Maddie, um, when she was little and fighting, saying like, how much am I worth? Right. Like that's heartbreaking to me that a 10 year old was wondering if she was of enough value for a drug to save her life. And I know that a lot of patients feel like that. And that sickens me, especially in countries as rich as Canada and the USA. We are rich countries. We are. We have more waste that could save these people. And when people are sitting there begging to be valued enough to be saved, my stomach turns like it really does. Like, no, everybody deserves to be saved and we need to find ways to do that. Right. It's shameful. It has to change and quickly. I agree. Anything you want us to know about the future of things that are happening in Canada that we should be aware of? Well, I think that, um, you know, we're still battling. We just, Trikafta was just approved for 6 to 12 within the last month, I think. They're still looking to get that provincially funded. Then it will then again be the private payers again that we're going to, you know, have to go after. Um, You know, there was still a lot of restrictive criteria, I think, that needs to be removed. So our system, although we've got these drugs through, it's still a piece, and I think you have it the same there. Like we call it a, a postal code lottery. So you have your zip codes, we have our postal codes. Mm-hmm. So quite often, when drugs come in, they may only be funded in certain provinces, right? So they call it the postal code lottery because if you're in the province that chooses to fund it, then you get it. Otherwise, you look to move to another province, um, and that's being addressed in the rare disease drug strategy. I'm all in that, um, setting up a better pathway. And I, you know, I want to do whatever I can to help that. And, and I think collaboration globally is, is, has to be part of that. So we're going to continue to work. It's never going to be over. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> right. Sadly. <laughs> Well, it's great to be able to do um, another podcast with you. You're a dear friend and we have a lot of work to do. And it's wonderful that we can talk to each other and talk about what's going on in our countries and kind of compare notes and, and figure out how to handle things. So I appreciate everything you do and thanks for all you do. Thank you, Laura. And uh, I have that admiration huge for you as well. I don't know how you do it. You don't stop. You're making a difference everywhere. Um, you know, I do one part. You do, you're helping so many people. And, and I treasure your friendship and love working alongside with you. And I have the opportunity to evoke change as well. Thank you. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin Allen. It's not complicated. Who happens to have cystic fibrosis. We all got our worries and fears. I know what's got you frustrated. But loving you is so all right. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Beatrice. It was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.